You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. If I told you that the way you grew up, your family situation, your environment, all of it, had an enormous impact on who you are today, you'd probably say, well, yeah, obviously. You don't need a psychology degree to connect those dots. But what if I told you that the way you grew up might be the most significant influence on your romantic relationships as an adult? On some level, this may not be all that surprising either, since who we are as individuals determines who we are as partners or spouses. How could it not? Still, even if the basic idea here is clear enough, I'm not sure most of us appreciate just how much the past influences our present. The reality is that so much of our personality, how we think, what we expect from other people, what we expect from ourselves, is shaped very early by the people we love and rely on the most. So, if you want to understand why you do what you do, or why you often don't do what you wish you did, it helps to look back at your life and find the roots of these patterns. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Vienna Farron. She's a couples therapist who's developed a pretty large following on social media. And she's just published her first book called The Origins of You, How Breaking Family Patterns Can Liberate the Way We Live and Love. This book is an attempt to force us to look closely at our own origin story, to reflect on where we came from and how those experiences color who we are in our relationships today. And she identifies several different kinds of what she calls origin wounds that shape our patterns of behavior later in life. Farron's book landed on my desk at an interesting moment for me. I'm married and have a very young son. And like everyone else, I'm navigating all the challenges that this entails. So this conversation was an opportunity to explore themes that are both personal and universal. We're all trying to be better partners. We're all trying to understand ourselves. And hopefully, we're all just trying to do life better, whatever that means. But I started the conversation by asking Vienna to lay out her approach to therapy. 
So my title is marriage and family therapist. I work with individuals, couples, and families, all within the context of relationships and really understanding the origin pain and wounds that we accrue in our childhood. So the lens through which I see people and relationships is through their family of origin, the family system or systems in which they grew up to see that there is a larger system at play in every moment, right? When we have unwanted patterns in our adult lives, we keep getting into the same conflict with a partner or a parent. We keep choosing emotionally unavailable people to date. We're chronically unhappy at every job that we hold. For me, if we can't create a quick change, right? If there's resistance there, if there's friction there, then that's a pretty good indicator that there's something unresolved from our past. And the place that I like to go is our family. I like to understand the template, right? That's our first education on just about everything. You know, we obviously get other people in there at different points, teachers, coaches, religion, et cetera, like all of these influences that start to shape our belief systems. But our family system is the first system where that education is, is handed over to us. A lot of times when people come in for individual therapy, it's really easy to just stay focused on that one person's experience, you know, the story that they're sharing. And I try to always keep other people in the room, even when they're not there physically. We all know that we have complex histories. We have a story that is rich. And when we can keep that in mind, when we're thinking about relational patterns that are breaking down, that's so helpful to remember that our partner or our parent or our sibling has a lot of context that's worth understanding. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you said that because I don't think anyone will be surprised to hear that our childhoods, our family dynamics growing up influences how we behave as adults. Mm -hmm. But why do you think it's worth really emphasizing not just how that impacts us as individuals, but how it impacts our relationships? Because maybe it's the relationships part that is perhaps less understood than the individual part. Yeah, right. And I think you're right that a lot of people can say like, sure, I can connect some of these dots and that makes a lot of rational sense. But I am a big believer that the unresolved pain from our past comes along with us. Our pain is not out to destroy our lives. Our pain is not out to ruin us, right? Our wounds are tugging at us because they want attention. And they find these really clever ways, right? Like our internal system is brilliant and super fascinating, the ways in which it will bring us back into contact with pain that is unresolved. And what we know to be true is that relationships are the greatest way for that pain to play itself out over and over and over again. So whether it's a romantic partnership, whether, you know, the listeners who have children who know our children are such great mirrors for us and they bring us into contact with a lot of that stuff. It's like relationships are where so much of that plays out. You know, you have so many people who are like, okay, I'm here to understand it. But understanding only takes us so far. There's only so much that we can do as individuals thinking about and, yeah, maybe processing on our own as well. But I find that if it's relationships that contributed to our pain, then it's relationships that need to contribute to our healing as well. And so, yeah, why we really need to explore this through the context of relationships. I'm curious, what is the first thing, if there is a first thing? you want to know about someone's family history when they come to you with relationship problems? 
There are many things I want to know about. Probably one of the first questions is, what did you want as a child and not get? Hmm. That'll bring us right to it. You know, even noticing like, oof, yeah, is there like a little bit of feeling sensation just hearing that question right now? You know, my parents, part of what got me into this work, of course, is my own personal story, unsurprisingly for all therapists, when people are like, how do therapists get into this work? It's like, yeah, we're figuring out how to resolve our unresolved pain, right? (laughs) My parents, they went through a nine-year divorce process. It was the longest divorce at the time for New Jersey. It was intense. And there was just a lot of high conflict. There was a lot of psychological abuse, manipulation, gaslighting, paranoia, emotional flooding. Like it was not an easy system to grow up in. And I'm an only child. So as a tiny little human, I was really there on my own. I think my parents obviously did what they could and all of my main needs were taken care of. But I took on this role of seeing the adults in my life crashing and burning around me. I believed that there wasn't room for me to not be okay because my perception of them was that they were not okay, that not only were they not okay, they were drowning. And so I started to fly under the radar. I started to pretend like I was fine. I was unaffected by things. I didn't want to add any type of stress or burden to their already full plates. And that role, you know, I took on and I kept it for decades And it wasn't until late in my 20s. And it clicked in at one moment in a conversation with a friend. It's like, ah, this needless little girl who pretended like she was unaffected by all of the things that were going on in her life and in her family became a needless woman who was presenting as the quote-unquote cool girl, right? This woman who, yeah, do whatever you want. I'm totally fine. I'm totally unaffected. No worries. I was fully boundaryless. And that role had come along with me and I was maintaining this position in my relationships. You know, I couldn't speak up in romantic partnerships. I couldn't speak up in friendships. I just was pretending that I was so unbothered and unaffected by things. And it wasn't until that moment where I could make a pivot and actually for the first time say, I'm not okay. I am affected by this. That might sound so simple, but that was a life-changing moment for me to let those words actually come out. And I share that story because we can sometimes see so clearly how our past comes with us, but other times it comes in such subtle ways, right? Whether we're recreating and repeating certain patterns or whether we're taking a path of opposition where we don't even see what's going on. And You know, for me, it is so important to not just understand, but to do the processing work in order to shift that and find a new path forward. Well, let me just first express some solidarity with you as a fellow only child, also from a broken home. So I can can relate in some ways to that. Mm -hmm. I encountered that question in your book, you know, what did you most need as a kid and not get? And boy, that was a big one. I thought about the answer to this, um, and it's huge. Yeah. It points us, though, to, you know, in the book, I talk about five origin wounds. And, you know, my answer to that question led me to an origin wound that really needed my attention. I wanted to know that it was okay for me to not be okay. And that origin wound for you, that's the divorce Yeah, so in the beginning of the book, I share a story. Um, I was in first grade. 
And that particular weekend was supposed to be the three of us. And, you know, my dad was watching a Yankees game. My mom wanted to go to the beach. He didn't want to go. And she invited my grandmother to come along with us. And, you know, I'm this little girl behind a closed door in her bedroom. And I hear, if you leave, don't come back. And the next thing I know is that my mom's barreling upstairs, having me pack a bag, and we're leaving. Yeah. And there's a lot that happens after that. You know, we don't go home. We go to my grandmother's home. Police are involved. I'm hiding in a closet, you know, instructed to not make a sound. Yeah, there's this rupture that makes me have to split my loyalty. Like, how do I take care of mom and dad? How do they both know that I love them? And all of a sudden, I'm in this position where I'm having to choose one over the other. And so, you know, that was the... That was the catalyst, right? That was the the rupture that then led into the nine-year divorce process. And, you know, yeah. all of that contributes to the lack of emotional safety, psychological safety as well. So what, what drew me to your book is this focus on patterns, patterns of thought, patterns of behavior. Obviously, those things are related. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how we get stuck in them. And one of the greatest frustrations in my life at the moment is... This feeling of being almost hostage to extremely dumb impulses. Mm. Like, I can often see myself doing or saying something in real time, often with my wife. Mm -hmm. I know it's stupid. I know it's counterproductive. I know it can only escalate a situation, and yet I plow ahead anyway. Mm -hmm. And there's this maddening feeling of knowing what I should do and not doing it. Maybe you'd call that self-sabotage. Maybe you'd call it being a dumbass. I, <laughs> I don't know. Like those obviously aren't mutually exclusive. What do you tell people when they experience some version of this? Like when they just can't quite overcome what they know are terrible impulses? Yeah. So self-sabotage, I'd reframe it as something that is self-protective. What does it serve to do the thing that you do, even though you know you ought not do it. Like I said before, our systems are brilliant. And so we're constantly working in a way to protect ourselves from something. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times that's an old operating system, right? It's protecting us from something that's unresolved, unhealed, right? As opposed to protecting us in the sense that it's supporting and working us towards our goals and our healing and connection. I wonder if you and I have some similarities. It sounds like maybe you didn't get too specific with that, but it makes me think about a story when I was first dating my now husband. We were in a conflict, no idea what the conflict was about, but I remember acutely that I could not stop proving my point, and I just kept going. I doubled down, I tripled down, and I was having this out-of-body experience where I was like, Vienna, shut up, you know, just like, stop. Can you take it back? You know, there was a lot of shame and embarrassment there. It's like I could see this part of me that just like needed to be right, needed to prove my point, and yet I couldn't stop myself from it. And I realized like, okay, what does point proving serve, right? What does the need to be right protect me from? And I grew up with a father who was really manipulative. He gaslit my mom, and he was really quick with his words. You know, he was really, really 
good at it. And as a tiny human, I watched this and I saw the impact that it had on my mother. It was, it was quite literally crazy making. And so I started to understand that my need to be right was my way of protecting myself. That being wrong was quite dangerous for me, right? That's what I had learned, right? That being wrong meant that I would be manipulated, that I would be taken advantage of, right? And so being right was safety for me. Proving my point was the way in which I safeguarded myself from the things from the past. That was such an important revelation for me because I needed to understand that, okay, yes, as a little girl, that made a lot of sense. But if I kept at this, right, if I didn't start to pay attention to that unresolved pain of what I saw growing up, then I would continue to loop into that. And I needed to find a way to process and witness that and grieve the pain from the past so that I could make a new choice in this current relationship, right? Because I did not have a partner who was manipulative. I have a very honest, kind, loving, open partner. And if I did not change that, you run the risk of having relationships end, right? Like that's that's the consequence to all of this. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know where it comes from with me. Maybe this will <laughs> maybe this will come out in the context of this conversation. Mm-hmm. For me, it it really does feel like this impulse to behave in ways I know are unhealthy is so strong that it it can feel like almost a nervous system sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to accept that because I don't want to rob myself of agency to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. But it really does feel like that sometimes. And I don't know if part of it is me almost thriving on conflict, right? Where like I'm choosing, I'm choosing conflict because that almost feels more familiar and safe than actually just choosing to interpret a situation differently that would push in the opposite direction. Absolutely, right? I mean, I think we go in the direction of familiarity, but I like, where does it lead you? You know, when you engage in whatever the destructive behavior is, where do you get to? With acting that way? Mm-hmm. Escalation? Mm-hmm. Conflict. And then how do you feel when you're in that escalation and conflict? Um, in an almost perverse way, I feel almost more comfortable because... I'm very much at ease when my guard is up. Mm. Like, I'm very comfortable fighting. Mm-hmm. I'm very comfortable arguing. I'm very comfortable attacking and deflecting. Mm-hmm. It's almost a safer space than being vulnerable, right? And so I just naturally retreat to that. Yeah, right. So, okay, one, where did you learn that from? Two, what does that protect you from? Three, what story does that wind up ultimately supporting for you? You know, it's the story it ultimately ends up supporting is that everything is fucked. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, right? Look, if if I was on your therapist couch, and I kind of am right now, <laughs> and you ask me, what's the one habit or the one part of my personality that I most want to change? What I would tell you is that I'm a catastrophizer very often. And this is something that I, <laughs> how should I put this? It's not great for me or my relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. And for anyone unfamiliar with that term, like what I mean is there is this instinct to almost pre-prepare for disaster by not just imagining all the ways something could go wrong, but actually like conjuring reasons to blow it up before it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I sniff conflict, I just my mind will immediately go to, oh yeah, of course, right? Because things are messed up and we're broken. And of course, this is just validation of all of that. And it it becomes self-fulfilling. Yeah. 
And it's totally delusional often. Well, but you're describing a hypervigilance, right? Mm, what does that mean? That sounds right. But. Like the part of you that's constantly scanning and pre-preparing for something to go wrong. Yeah. And the inquiry would be, what's familiar about that? When did you have to prepare? Right? Why did you need to look out for things going wrong? Why did you need to look out for things going south? It's not to put you on the spot, but I imagine that there is some history in your life where you learned that there's a need for hypervigilance. And I think fear probably has a lot to do with it. Fear of what exactly? I, I can't say. I mean, maybe you would call it a safety wound mm -hmm. that stems from my being an only child from a broken home with very young parents who were trying to figure out how to be parents before they were probably ready. Mm -hmm to be parents. And so part of it feels very much like a defense mechanism. Certainly. To have young parents who are figuring it out often creates an environment where a child has to do some figuring out themselves. I don't know if that resonates for you, but they don't necessarily know what to be thinking of next. Or because there's an immaturity that might have been there, then you have to become the observer, the hypervigilant one, or just vigilant one to say, well, hey, my need's over here. Or, hey, we've got to look out for this. Or, hey, what about that? If they're not as attuned or aware, which can happen when we have adults stepping into a role that maybe is slightly premature for them. It reminds me of this one story that I share in the book about Natasha, and she's coming into therapy, and she's trying to figure out whether or not she should stay in the relationship with Clyde, who is this wonderful man, but she keeps thinking that the other shoe is going to drop, and she doesn't know why. And at first, she doesn't want to talk about her family, past, at all. She's like, no, like I'm here to figure out if I should stay with him or not. We're about to get engaged, and I need this answer. And a little bit into our therapy, I learned that when she was a teenager, she stumbled upon an email that was open on her father's computer and it was between her father and a woman who wasn't her mother. He walks in on her. He sees her crying. He says, please don't tell your mother or sister. I promise I'll cut it off. And she holds that secret for him forever. It was the first time that she had spoken that out loud to anyone, right, was to me in that session decades later. She had absorbed it in such a way and then had to go on pretending like nothing had ever happened, which makes sense as to why she said, you know, I have a great family and great, great childhood, that it didn't strike her that the other shoe dropping came from this origin story. And she was going through life in her romantic relationships, waiting for the other shoe to drop, exiting those relationships early for really no reason, but just because of the anticipation of something could go wrong. You cannot trust people even if they present like they are phenomenal humans, right? And that was such an opener for us because it brought us to the part of her that needed to process the origin pain, that needed to witness this teenager who was asked to hold a secret, who did, and what that did to her, and then to grieve the emotions that were there so that she could then choose to be committed and move forward with a partner who was actually a great fit and really aligned for her. And so you can see how sometimes when we don't have that awareness, the past unresolved or untouched pain can create and maintain these behaviors and these patterns. And so for you or for anybody who's listening who resonates with this, right? Like that's the inquiry. Well, I'm glad you brought up that story. It's about trust, you know, a lack of trust. And mm -hmm. 
And that's a very common problem in relationships. And it's easy to understand in certain situations like infidelity or something. Mm -hmm. That's an obvious breach of trust that's very hard to get back. But I think a lack of trust often shows up in much quieter, deeper ways Mm -hmm. for a lot of us. And that is harder to diagnose, but every bit is consequential. That's right. Like, for example, like, like maybe, you know, we don't open ourselves up to someone because we're worried about being judged or even more insidious. We assume the worst intentions from our partner for perhaps lots of reasons that have nothing to do with them, that predate them. Mm-hmm. But seeing someone through that filter of suspicion is such a poison pill for a relationship. And it does kind of boil down to trust. And I guess, you know, if you dig deep enough into the source of all of that, you end up landing in childhood. Mm-hmm. Not always, but I suspect often. Yeah, right. Not always. And of course, I I recognize that not every wound of ours gets created in childhood. It's just the framework that I use when I'm doing my work. But yeah, the breach of trust is so brutal because we all know that it's so hard to work our way back from it. And you're right. We have the big ones, right? The obvious ones in infidelity, somebody gambling away your education fund or something like that. But then we also have the things like parents who make promises that they don't follow through on. And it might feel small, but that's something that starts to teach a child whether or not they can trust another person to follow through on what they're saying. I think when it's our parents or the adults who are in our parental roles who teach us that we are not worthy, who communicate to us that we are not a priority or that you can't trust other people or that you're not safe in the world, it's a really hard thing to come back from because as kids, we look to our parents, to the adults as truth. We don't have the capacity to process properly, right? If I'm not worthy in the eyes of my parent, then there's no way that I'm worthy in the eyes of anybody else. If I can't trust the people who are supposed to love me, protect me, nurture me, guide me, then what do you mean I'm supposed to trust other people? That's a real conundrum for a lot of folks. How do you draw the line between self-love and self-indulgence? I'll ask Vienna after a short break. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. 
and it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. You know, I'll be honest, like one of the things I've always found sort of off-putting about the world of wellness literature is a kind of obsession with self-care and self-fulfillment. You know, taken too far, I do think that can become self-indulgent when often I think what we really need in order to be happy is to be less self-involved. But I think you you make a pretty compelling case that the absence of self-love manifest in some pretty toxic ways in our relationships. And mm-hmm. maybe you could just say a bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I think the absence of self-love really intersects with these wounds. When you don't feel deserving or good enough that there were conditions for love, right? I needed to perform, be perfect, be a people pleaser, be the comic relief, whatever it is in order to get connection, attention, love, presence, etc. right? And maybe I should just name worthiness, belonging, prioritization, trust, and safety are the five wounds that I go over. What we'll see is that those things strip away at our confidence, they strip away at the self, right? This belief that I belong as I am. So with a belonging wound, a lot of times families have this narrative, like this is what it looks like to be a part of this family. This is what we believe. This is what we do. This is how we show up in the world. And some of that is beautiful, right? The traditions that we have with a family that might be lovely, but other parts of that are where we're asked to trade our authenticity for attachment. Dr. Gabor Mate talks about that being our two lifelines, attachment and authenticity. But when when attachment is threatened, a child will trade authenticity in an instant in order to survive. And so we start to see how all of these things strip away from our capacity to hold ourselves in high regard or even just regard, to pick ourselves up and believe that we are deserving of, to believe that we can just be ourselves and that that is enough, to believe that we are important in the world, to believe that there are people in this world whom we can trust, or to believe that there is care and concern for our overall well-being. And so self-love to me is not, you know, sure, you want to throw in some bubble baths and yeah, those are great things for us from time to time. But I talk about self-love as the intersection of grace and compassion for the self, as well as accountability and ownership. And we have to see ourselves as a part of the human experience, but we also need to take accountability and ownership. And when we don't do that, we're stuck the self-critic is totally turned up, right? That inner voice that just has a lot to say about who we are and what we're doing and doesn't seem to have any problems letting us know. And so like we stay stuck in that space instead of moving to a place of agency, I think you said before. Yeah. Yeah. The question of authenticity, about how as children we often trade our authenticity for attachment. Mm -hmm. We start contorting ourselves very early. I certainly did for way longer than I should have for other people, because that is the straightest line to 
acceptance. Mm -hmm. But that strategy does not work in the long run. And I think you're right that it becomes a problem in our relationships, right? I mean, there, there, are, <laughs> there are many different versions of this. I, I have my own to not make this all about me. There's a case in the book. It's the gay man from West Virginia mm -hmm. who is closeted for years and he moves to New York City and finds himself in a relationship with someone who's wrapped up in the party scene and he's like playing along, but it's not really what he wants. He wants a quieter life, but he's stuck performing this role because he thinks he has to in order to be accepted by his partner and probably by his social circle. But no one can maintain that kind of pose forever, right? Like we got to be who we are for the people we love or they won't be able to love us and we won't be able to love ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. All of this stuff is the Band-Aid. It can take us to a certain point. We can fake it. Okay, I'll be perfect and I can fake it for a little bit. Or yeah, I'll trade authenticity and do what I need to do to fit in. Okay, we can fake it for a little bit. And it might give us the outcome that we want. Maybe people give us validation or they might give us attention or they might want to spend time with us. But it ends. We cannot keep that up forever. And that's why I say it's so important for us to go into the origin pain. So for the, the man you're describing, he needed to spend time witnessing the pain about his family rejecting him. There were constraints there. His sexuality was something that they could not really comprehend from the South, very religious family. And so there were a lot of constraints there. And he overheard his mom after he had come out say, like, why is he ruining my life? You know, those like daggers that really, really hurt him and tore him apart. And when we just scurry by that, right? When we just brute force our way through, when we white knuckle it, when we're just like, okay, I'm just going to keep on going and not try to tend to the pain, what winds up happening is we maintain that I'm not worthy, that I'm not lovable, that I'm not a priority, that I do not fit in, that I don't belong, that I'm not safe, that there is nobody to trust in the world. Those things just keep circulating and, you know, maintaining the pain. It was so important for people to come back into contact with the original pain that set all of these patterns in motion. We're both parents. Mm -hmm. And having a kid is such a transformative event in the life of a couple. Everyone more or less understands that. But do you think we still underestimate just how much becoming a parent changes our relationships? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think you're right. In theory, we're like, of course it does. But until you're in it, you know, we don't necessarily understand the strain that it has on you. Obviously, we know that there are such beautiful parts to it, such expansive parts. And there's also really hard stuff that presents itself. And yeah, I think we probably do underestimate. Listen, I'm, and I know you too, we're, we're still in the early part of parenthood. I can tell how easy it is for resentment to present very early on when you step into parenthood. And I don't know if you experienced that too, but I think my husband and I, we have such a great team and that was still there. That piece of, are we doing things equally and who's contributing what and you know how quick it is for resentment to start to creep in. And the expectations, you know, when we're doing this type of healing work too, seeing yourself as parent and what that brings forward for you, 
in terms of your relationship with your own or, you know, thinking back to when you were a tiny human and how you want to offer a very different experience for them or a similar experience, right? If you had a really great one, there's so many layers that start to reveal themselves. And until you're in the thick of it, I think it's hard to fully know what's going to show up there. Yeah. I think it really is true on some level that every couple is a story that they sort of believe together. And that story changes. It has to change. And it certainly changes when you become parents, you know, and I, again, I can only speak from personal experience, but what has happened for us is there's this kind of gradual evolution from being friends who sort of share life together. Mm -hmm. And if you're not very careful, what you find yourself becoming is less that and more co-managers mm -hmm. of a household and all your energy and all your bandwidth and all your patience gets used up on this child you know especially when when they're really young you know again we have a three and a half year old and that means there's nothing left for each other and so you become more reactive and more irritable and you start dumping some of those frustrations onto each other because there's nowhere else for it to go and that has been one of the hardest things to reckon with and, and try to transcend. And there are good days and there are bad days, but the bad days are, are hard. <laughs> They're hard. And I think it's interesting, too, because depending on what type of wound you might have, there's certain things that might activate us even more. So, for example, if you're a parent who has a prioritization wound, meaning you didn't feel important growing up, maybe you had a parent who was a workaholic, or maybe there were mental health challenges in the family system that took up the space or addiction that took up the space. If that's the wound, and then you have this third party come into the equation, and then all of a sudden... The other partner is spending a lot of time with that third-party baby, and all of that love and connection is going there. All of a sudden, even though we can rationalize it and say, of course, it's a baby, this is what we do, yada, 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 it doesn't mean that the wound isn't getting activated, right? All of a sudden, I am deprioritized now. Yeah. Or if we have a worthiness wound, and so unless I am showing up as a perfect parent, because that's what I learned, that in order to be loved, I, I needed to be perfect. And now here I am in this new role where, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. I feel nervous. I'm a little scared. I'm not sure I, I trust myself, all the things, right? Then it activates that piece. And so obviously every parent's journey is different, right? And the things that activate us within that space. And I'm not just saying in relation to the child, within the coupleship too, you'll start to see like, what are the things that make me most reactive here? Our reactivity, when we have strong reactions, it's a neon sign that directs us back to our wounds. I'm pissed that I'm not getting time with my partner. I feel like you're prioritizing our child over me. Just noticing what's showing up is going to remind us and tell us where we need to go spend more time. The worthiness wound prompted a bit of tough reflection. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I'm, I was an only child. There weren't any siblings around. And I think part of the way I responded to that was this feeling of not quite having a tribe, mm -hmm. you know, and having parents who were young and not always available. And so I think the way I, that ended up manifesting for me is I became very sort of chameleonic, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I became very good at trying to fit in. Shape-shifting. Yeah, with as many different people as I could in order to, I don't know, get validation or just feel like I was 
part of a tribe. And yeah, you do that long enough and eventually you realize, oh, I never really actually settled my identity. I just kept playing with new ones in order to fit with the circumstances in which I found myself. Mm-hmm. It was a big revelation for me. And I think when you start your own family for the first time, oh yeah, do I belong here? Can I be a part of something here? Even when it's partnership, right? There's that sense. And then you bring somebody else into the mix and you're like, wow, okay, what I had. And you've got the the same equation now. Right now, your child is an only child. And to think about what that reflects back to you and what am I creating, but also can I make space to feel a part of something here as well? Can I receive that, right? Or am I finding ways to block that? So if you were someone who is finding themselves stuck in some of these patterns of reactivity, and you you want to disrupt that pattern. Is there any other concrete advice you can give people a a practice or a tool that they can draw on Mm -hmm. when they find themselves slipping into another one of these patterns and just kind of doing the same dance over and over again? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the question, and I think I said it earlier what does this pattern serve? Do you mean literally like like pausing and kind of posing the question to yourself? Yeah, and you might not be able to do it in the moment. I think a lot of times when we're hot, there's not a lot of cooling down that can happen right away. So in a moment of reflection, whether that's a few hours later, the next day, the next week, or right now before something even happens, right? To notice like, what are the things that make me the most reactive? What do the patterns in my life, the things that I want to change, what does this serve? Now, we're going to say it doesn't serve anything. All it does is cause problems. All it does is cause disconnection. All it does is cause dysfunction in my relationships. But it still serves something. And my example that I shared before was it served my need to protect myself. It served my need that being right meant that I was safe. And so whatever it is that you're doing that you can't stand, that you're trying to change, it's doing something that your system thinks is for you. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. (laughs) One thing I started doing, and you could tell me if this is stupid, and I'm working on this, but I kind of came to the conclusion, all right, look, (laughs) I can't quite break these patterns in the sense of I can't quite do exactly what I want to do, what I know I should do. Mm -hmm. So until or unless I can do that, what I will do is as soon as I can observe that, okay, we're on the brink of an interaction going sideways here, and I'm up in my head about it. Mm -hmm. I just said, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to walk away. What I'm not going to do is escalate, mm-hmm. right? I can't quite resolve this, but I'm going to I'm gonna just put a bow on this whole exchange, walk away, and then we could circle back later. But I can see that if I'm going to keep participating in what's happening here, uh, I'm going to do it in a way that's going to make this worse, not better. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to, that's it. I'm going to end it. Is that, um, obviously it's not a solution to any of these fundamental problems, but is it? It's a pause. I mean, is that better than just continuing on with the with the pattern? Well, remember earlier on in this chat, we talked about that it's not just about us, it's about the other person that is in the equation with us, right? That they also have a history, that they also have wounds. And so, yes, 
individually, this is a pause and probably a pretty good one. You know that it's going to escalate. That never ends well. And so I'd rather not escalate. But what we're missing is whether or not you stepping away activates something in the other person. And if we don't talk about that, right, if there isn't an agreement, then that's something that can cause a different type of a rupture. So for example, if the other person has an abandonment wound or they feel like you stepping away doesn't honor their emotional safety, for example, or they feel deprioritized when you say, I'm out of here, I'm not going to keep having this conversation, and all of a sudden that activates a prioritization wound, right? Like, that's what's so important, and that's so relationship-specific. It's to say, what's going to work for the two of you, right? And how do you co-create that with the idea and understanding of what's at play so that we can tend to and, like, care for the other person's experience while also caring for our own. So, yeah, it, it sounds like it's a good pause for you, but I would get curious about whether it's a good pause for the other person, too. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> if we, if we I'm working on it. We've got to take one last quick break. But when we come back, Vienna's seen a lot of couples. So what do people regret the most when they look back on their relationships? Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You counsel a lot of couples. Yes. Some of them figure it out and stay together. Some of them don't. Mm -hmm. In your experience, what do you find that people regret the most when they reflect back on their relationships? 
Mm. Probably that they don't come to it sooner. You know, like that the that they don't come to the awarenesses sooner. That they don't start working on the problem sooner. You mean? Yeah, and because I, I think it, what's important is that we're not so hard and difficult on ourselves. Like a lot of times, people will come in and they're like, "I know, I'm starting way late," and it's like, "No, like you're you you know, we're stepping into something when we're ready for it." Yeah. And I think it's important again to have that grace and compassion for ourselves instead of like, "Oh, my life or my relationships could have been so different ten years ago." And it's like, sure, you know that. That could have been true, but here we are. You know, that doesn't really serve anything for us to just think that way and blame ourselves. But I think that's one of the things that people struggle with is, oh, I wish that I had been readier to confront this sooner because the beauty of this work is that we gain internal peace. It changes our relationships and the quality of our relationships, certainly, but there is a beautiful internal peace that happens when we do this work, when people get a taste of that and they're like, oh, I don't have to be in suffering all the time. I understand why that regret can pop up. Every now and then, um, usually after some kind of stupid fight, I'll imagine, yeah, how would I feel if my wife left right now, right? We got in this fight and she just got in the car and left. And something tragic happened, mm-hmm. you know, like a car accident or something. I mean, my, my mother passed away um, about two and a half years ago from a, a car accident very suddenly. So that's still very much on my mind, that possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not trying to be dark here or too heavy. I, I'm really not. I guess I'm trying to make a point, you know, like if that were to happen, what I know, absolutely, what I know more than anything I've ever known in my whole life is that I would never forgive myself for having wasted the time we had on such ridiculous, trivial nonsense that will appear so trivial and ridiculous less than 24 hours later. Yeah, but the trivial stuff is connected to our pain. Right. We don't do stupid shit just because it's fun. You know, we don't fight about the toothpaste cap and the toilet, you know, just these stupid, you know, examples that we've had for so long, right? It's like, no one's doing that because we actually care about that. It's never about that, right? The thing you're fighting about is almost never the thing you're fighting about. Right. So this trivial surface level stuff is connected to legitimate pain that we carry. You know, I've worked over 20,000 hours, individuals, couples, families, and therapy. And this is what I have seen over and over and over again. My personal life, my professional life, it points us to these wounds. And when we can tend to those wounds, then we can begin to create those changes. You know, you said something before about the change that you would like to see. This is what I want it to look like. And I think there's an inquiry there about what would you need to believe in order for that to happen? Yeah. What do you need to believe about yourself in order for that to actually happen? There's so much that can birth from that place. So if someone's listening to this or they they read your book and discover for themselves, yeah, okay, I've got a worthiness wound or I have a safety wound or whatever the deal is, right? They, They start with a problem they're having and they can trace it back to their history. Well, what do they do next? What's the next move concretely, right? Like, okay, you have this knowledge, right? But knowing and doing are not the same thing. That's right. So what's the next move? 
So I walk the reader through a four-step process, my origin healing practice, where the first part is about naming and identifying the wound. Do not be surprised if you have multiple. So you're naming what wound or wounds you resonate with and identify with. The second part of the practice is witnessing. So Yeah, the part of the self, again, that just wants to move on. We don't tend, we don't acknowledge and see ourselves very well. And the witnessing step is about that. Now, I'm a big believer in witnessing the self. I'm also a big believer in having another human whom we trust, who loves us, somebody we're safe with, do witnessing as well. What's really important for people to hear is that the person or people who contributed to the origin wound do not need to participate in the witnessing of it now. They don't need to participate in the healing of it in any way. In fact, I would say probably more times than not, I hear people say like, yeah, my parent just can't acknowledge it or they're super defensive or all they do is explain why they did what they did, right? And like, and people keep going there over and over and over again. Well, maybe if I say it this way, or maybe if I write them a letter instead of speaking it to them, or maybe if I'm really kind, or maybe if I get really angry, like what way will it get through? And I think sometimes when we get caught in this space of needing the person that we so badly want to acknowledge it, to be the person who has to do it, we get trapped in this cycle and can't find a way forward. And so oftentimes witnessing the younger self, I remember when I was, gosh, I must've been like seven or eight years old. I would find these like sneaky ways to pick up the telephone and listen in on my parents' conversations. Or I'd perch myself at the top of the steps and there was like a little opening where I could listen in to the conversation that my mom was having on the phone. You know, becoming this detective and trying to figure out who's telling the truth or what's going on. I needed that information. And I remember the first time that I really closed my eyes and kind of transported myself as an adult, witnessing from afar. You know, if you were seeing it on a movie screen, uh, it was maybe a few feet away from my seven, eight-year-old self perched atop those stairs. But I just got there and I was watching her, watching her listen in, watching her absorb the fighting, all of the conflict, all the anger, the yelling, and just seeing her, you know? Again, I didn't have siblings. Neither of my parents ever remarried. There were no step-parents or anybody else. There's just no validation, right? And so there was something really important about being able to witness what I had gone through through my adult clear lenses today. And so that was so important for me to do. And it's been really important for people I work with to do that witnessing or to have a loving partner do that as well. The third part is grieving. People are like, oh, I don't want to. When in doubt, grieve more. When stuck, grieve more. But that will sound to a lot of people like wallowing, right? What's the difference? Yeah. Because wallowing seems unproductive, but grieving in the sense you mean it is the opposite. Yeah, right. It's very intentional. This is never about us wallowing, getting stuck, being in some type of victim position. This is about feeling what needs to be felt. Right. And sometimes I think when we have an aversion to wallowing or feeling, we're like, nope, I don't need to. You know, I'm just going to, again, white knuckle my way through something. And what we find is that grieving is so important for us to allow ourselves to come into contact with the emotion that is there what was lost, the sadness that is held around what those experiences might have been like. 
and to allow ourselves to come into contact with the pain. And then the fourth step is pivoting. I don't believe that we pivot before we witness and grieve. You know, I think that the pivot, right, which is about, I don't know if you've ever done cross-country skiing. I, I tried and okay. <laughs> I, I took them off after 10 minutes, threw them away and grabbed my snowboard. Yeah, makes sense. But you know the idea of, you know, if a track is already laid, yeah, it's so much easier. I mean, it's hard anyway, but it's easier than when you are in fresh powder. And the pivot is really about, okay, I'm jumping off the thing that is so familiar, the pattern, right? And when I have witnessed and grieved the pause between stimulus and response, right? There's more space for us to connect with that. We see, we are aware of things, and then it's in that moment that we can make a decision about staying in the loop or exiting and trying something different. I love that. It's so important. That pause between stimulus and response. That is the worst feeling for me. Mm -hmm. And even what you said a second ago about, it's not about feeling yourself to be some kind of victim. Like I'm really sensitive to that. And I I reflect back in, I I had this problem as a a kid and my parents were emotionally available in this way and that way and whatever. And boy, I don't want to get trapped in this narrative that strips me of my ability to do better, to do otherwise. But you still have to, you have to reckon with these things. You have to face them, you know, again, the cliche, the only way out is through. Right. It is. It is the pathway to our freedom, right? And and there's such truth to that. And, you know, certain cliches are cliches because there's truth to them, right? Like that the only way out is through. And I think when we build up these muscles of awareness of what's happening in this moment is not just about this moment. What's happening in this moment is every moment that predates this moment that is familiar to what's playing out here. When we tend to that pain, then pain is like, okay, like almost as if you could make pain or your wounds a different entity, externalize it, put it outside of you for a moment. Pain is not out to destroy us. They're not like, ha, 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 I can't wait to fuck your life over. You know, it's like, that's not what it's trying to do. It's there to be tended to. It wants acknowledgement. It wants to be seen. It wants to be heard. It wants to be honored. And that's not what we do. We just try to go on with our lives, skip over it, or we don't tend to it properly. And that's the beauty is that once we do, then pain is able to say, okay, I don't need to keep bringing you back into this. That's why we wind up in the same patterns over and over again. Pain's like, I have to find clever ways to keep bringing you back into contact with this thing. So I'm going to find ways to do that. Yeah. There is something so profound about watching it play out and having people care for the pain and remember it, you know? Like, it doesn't just go out of sight, and it doesn't mean that you come to some, you know, completion place or, you know, you never come into contact with the pain again. We know that grief is an ongoing thing, and we will face it every time it presents itself. And it's more that the charge changes, Right, that the charge lessens. And when the charge lessens, we have more control. We have more agency as opposed to the pain having more control. This is an unfair, probably impossible question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I'm annoying like that sometimes. Okay. How do we know when to walk away from a relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that question in and of itself outsources the answer. What does that mean? You 
are asking somebody outside of you to make that decision. And I know that you're asking this for the general public, but I think that that's what people do, right? Is they say, how will I know instead of going inwards and spending time with all of the parts and the pieces that are specific to that individual and that relationship. Because how one person knows is entirely different than how another person knows. And I think a lot of times it's so hard to be responsible for that decision. There's something nice about somebody else telling us that like, yeah, well, if they do X, Y, and Z, then you should definitely leave. To actually own the decision based on what is true about your life and what's true about what's playing out in your relationship. It's not a cop-out. <laughs> My answer is not a cop-out, I promise. But i that's where I would turn somebody for us to then begin to have the conversations of what is happening in that person's internal world and story. I mean, look, probably if nothing else, um, you know, relationship is a dynamic between two people, but... Mm-hmm. Simply doing the work to figure out what your problems are, what's coming from you, and discerning that from just the shit you're projecting onto your partner is very helpful. Mm-hmm. At least then you can have maybe a clearer view of not just what's wrong, but what's solvable. Absolutely. You know, I get a lot of questions about, well, what if, what if a partner doesn't want to look at their origin wounds or they like definitely don't want to talk about their family? And in the best case scenario, we have people who do. That's our best case scenario is that people are like, give me this book, pull up my sleeves, let's get into it. But we can affect a lot on our own, right? You can never make the horse drink from the well. You cannot force a person into this space, and I would not recommend that. But what I would recommend is doing your own Sometimes we start living by example. Sometimes we start revealing, oh my gosh, I just had this aha, and what this revealed to me is X, Y, and Z. Those things can sometimes shift a system in pretty significant ways. And when you stay on your own path, there's clarity that will come from that. This conversation and the book, it really did hit me at an opportune time. And I read it very, very closely um, and took it on board. So thanks. Thank you. The book is, once again, The Origins of You, How Breaking Family Patterns Can Liberate the Way We Live and Love. Vienna Farron, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I told Vienna before we actually started recording that I had to be a little personal and speak from my own experiences because that's all I know. Obviously, my experiences are my own and we're all living our own particular circumstances, but there are common threads. Most of us are trying to navigate relationships. A lot of us are trying to be parents. A lot of us are struggling with our own unhelpful, counterproductive patterns. And maybe some of this helped. But let me know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. 
And if you appreciated this episode, as always, share it with your friends on all the socials. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.